Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Blanc. Later in the hour, we'll talk to author and master bartender John DeBerry about his work at the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and his book, Drink What You Want, The Subjective Guide to Making Objectively Delicious Cocktails. But first, while your favorite neighborhood restaurant was trying to figure out how to survive on takeout orders and curbside delivery, it's likely business at your local package store was booming. Today, we'll talk more about the business of booze with sommelier and self-described cork dork, G. Patel. He owns Bottle Stop Wine and Spirit Stores in Newtown, Torrington, and Avon. He also owns Valley Discount Wine in Ansonia and Madison Wine Exchange in Madison, Connecticut. We met up with him in a strip mall in the town where I live, Newtown, and we set up a table right outside a bottle stop. And what could be better to drink on a 90-degree day than a cold glass of rosé, or maybe two glasses? Coming up, G gives us some recommendations for delicious, affordable bottles, and one even has some bubbles. This is what it takes to get Marisol to come visit me in my hometown, a sparkling rosé. I mean, I told you a girl likes bubbles. But before we get to the rosé, we asked G about how his business has been going during the pandemic. You know, it's funny. I, I've been in the business for uh, before it was legal. So I, <laughs> I, you got to be 18 to work in a liquor store, right? Yeah. So my parents have owned wine stores and liquor stores in Connecticut since 1986. And I'm an immigrant family member, right? My, so my mother and father immigrated from England here yeah. to the United States. And they found themselves into a small package store in Bridgeport, Connecticut. That was their start. And I would, with my brother, walk home from school. Uh, and on our way, we'd stop at the store, help uh, ring six packs of beer, fill the cooler, take out the garbage for my mother, who would wait for my father to get off from his nine to five engineering job to then close up the store. And then she'd bring us home. You know, so we really kind of felt bought in like, hey, we're part of this mission and part of this journey with them. Very early on, I recognized the prowess of my mother's presence in the store. As we opened up a store in Ansonia, she took a liking to wine and just started talking to people about it. And through that action alone repeated over how many interactions with people walking into the store she was able to build a tremendous following in like i said one of the least likely places in the world to build a wine shop she built a wine shop and so it was really amazing to see this and then i realized that it's not just the beverage it's it's people and the beverage right Mm -hmm. and so the two connected it's what makes wine an amazing product what's your desired outcome Right. Are you going to gift this to somebody? Are you going to pop the cork and, and pour it with them? Is it going to be just the two of you looking at a sunset? Or is, are you guys on a patio and there's, uh, you know, someone's pulling out a rack of ribs? and, and, and or you might right. park, Are you, you in a parking not? lot? Right. Are you yeah, in a parking so, lot? Exactly. Right. During the pandemic, one of the things that you and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, G, is that, I mean, we definitely became professional drinkers during oh, the, the whole pandemic Oh, 100 I may have time. been a professional drinker before the pandemic, but that's neither here nor I there. I mean, I think you might have like a first place ribbon somewhere. Well, it's, you may or may not be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you were talking about how it seemed like people's wine drinking habits had changed a little bit based on what it was before. Uh, just talk a little bit about that and how it, it affected the business. And Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that people's consumption in general uptick because everyone was kind of like left at home to their own devices and yeah. it was still really cold. You didn't find yourself outside that much at the beginning of this whole thing, right? Sure, so what yeah. do you do when you're indoors? I mean, it gets a little darker a little sooner, yeah. right? You find yourself saying, hey, you know what? 
I don't have a commute home. I might as well just throw on uh, my favorite show or Netflix binge and, or you know, catch up with a good book or all the things I've been putting off. Right. And what am I going to do that with? A glass of wine or maybe I'm having a beer or maybe I'm having a glass of scotch. But you're right. People's patterns change. I think people got a little worried. So they came into stores and they saw the hurried nature of everything, just like when you went to go buy, you know, chicken breasts at your favorite supermarket right. or fill up on gas so that way, you, you know, you didn't run out. Right. You know, same thing. They were coming into the store and just it was more of a smash and grab mentality. People weren't looking for advice. They were looking for you to get out of the way, yeah. grab wine and get the heck out because they didn't want to be in public. They didn't want to be next to people and they didn't want to uh, converse or come into contact with anybody. But they had to by virtue of the nature of what we do, sell wine. and liquor. How did your business business change at all? Did you, was it a massive increase? Was it flat? Did it decrease? Well, so we definitely saw an increase. And what I think was really interesting is, is that the effort that we put forth in terms of our marketing and what we do to spread knowledge and, and a lot of the things that we encourage, we've seen more people engaged in our email list. We've seen more people engaged in our social media posts because at this point they can't get that interaction in the store as much or they're not looking for it as much. Uh, some customers are happy to come into the store and still browse and still shop, you know, with a gloves and a mask on. Mm -hmm. They're still happy to ask our opinions, but we don't have wine open like we typically right. do. We usually always have four or five bottles of wine open. We have events every month. But what did you do before we were allowed to go back into stores? Were you doing a heavy delivery? Uh, so we always had open doors. All our stores, uh, I'm not sure if you had an opportunity to walk walk the, the full store, oh, yeah, but it's yeah. a big store. It's enormous. All yeah. of our stores are pretty big and, and we have really wide aisles and, and we've done that with the intent of making it a very friendly environment for people to shop and not feel like they're you know, on top of each other. And it's cluttered or clustered, right? And so for us, it's much more about creating that open environment because we know it's comfortable for people, but it definitely rang true for COVID. So if you were a smaller store with tighter aisles, with very limited mobility inside the store, I feel like you may have suffered if you didn't start to present other options. But we've got fully commerce site across all our locations. So we saw a lot of people shift towards making an online purchase and choosing for in-store pickup. Uh, and then, then we started to add to that the curbside offering so they didn't even have to get out of their car. They could pull up to the front of the store, give us a buzz. We run it out to them. At the same time, a lot of folks don't feel comfortable online, right? So there's a certain demographic that not necessarily doesn't trust it, but doesn't really, it's not intuitive for them. Mm -hmm. It's not natural. Right. Yeah. And so uh, those customers, uh, we encourage, give us a call. You know, if you want, let us know what time, what date, when, when you have the most time to kind of just spend a little time with us over the phone and we'll call you. And we'll talk to you about anything new and exciting that we recently got into the store, whether it's scotch, beer, whether it's a bottle of wine. Our best customers, our best clients, they, that's probably the thing that they love most about our stores. They can come in and they can grab someone's ear and they can walk around the store, mix up a case or two. And, you know, they get it home and they're looking forward to every one of those those corks that they're going to pop. Right. And then come back the next day and do it all over again. That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> at, least, at least Chef Plum does that. That's right. Anyway, exactly. Say. Both Marisol and I are both staring at uh, these <laughs> wonderful cold bottles in front of us. Uh, I'm a big fan of Rosé's, Marisol. Are you? I am too. I mean, like a big fan. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm six foot three, 250 pounds of twisted steel, <laughs> and I can drink Rosé's like a champion. You have no idea. All six foot three of you, six yes, Six foot chef. three, like Muhammad Ali. Yes. I float like a butterfly, sting, sting like, like poison a ivy. <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> but G's popped the cork here G on a bottle for us. Yes. We wanted to make a theme here, right? And so rosé is definitely a hot topic. It's got everyone talking in the wine world. And at this point, I feel like we need to keep talking about quality rosé because all the marketers have gotten into to making rosé. So I think it's really important to talk about how much quality rosé exists out there from real producers at valuable price points. But I wanted to pay hum homage to the motherland of great rosé, and that's Provence. Provence. Yeah. Provence. Exactly. Yeah. 
So right there in the, the Mediterranean there, uh, right on the border of Italy, all the way up until the, where the, the Rhone Valley kind of ends is Provence. And this is a great zip code where okay. Rosé was, was perfected, I feel. You can find really top quality estates. There's 18, in fact, crew Rosé, which means that they're the highest quality Rosé of I feel like I should region. be taking yeah. notes. Oh, my gosh. Well, so... This one producer, uh, Chateau Minity, is one of those crew rosé producers. Now, this isn't one of their flagship wines. In fact, this is their entry-level offering. Uh, but it gives you a real serious snapshot at what quality rosé can be from a producer who's got, you know, let's face it, arguably among the best pedigree on the planet yeah. for making rosé. So down in this part of the world, they're going to make pink wine from a combination of red wine grapes, and they're going to crush it and they're going to have very little skin contact with the actual juice. So what happens is you've got these red wine grapes that are bleeding off a, a white to gray liquid that get very little bit of contact, what we call maceration with the skins. Or in this scenario, I think it's more direct press where they crush it. And Which essentially is where the color comes from in the wine is from the skin of the grape. Exactly. So there's pigmentation color yeah. right inside of the skin of a red wine grape, and that's where all the color of a red wine would come from. So in essence, if you don't let the juice sit inside that, that skin, you won't see much color. Uh -huh. you get, that's where the skin is where you get the tannins from in your mouth, that, that feeling of like dryness in your mouth. Okay, hold on. Let's First grapes. of all, let's clink our glasses. Yes, yes. Here, let's, let's, uh, let's definitely do that. Love it. There we go. Cheers. Uh, I, I love this rosé. I've had, you've given me this before. I yeah. love this rosé. So this, this, is a, this is a great house. And so I was talking about their pedigree before. You know, you can easily spend $50 on some of the world's best rosés from this part of the world. Do I feel like you need to? No, if you're doing that great, that's mm -hmm. awesome. Go ahead and reach for it. Uh, I'll come hang out with you on your patio while you're drinking it any day of the week. <laughs> this rosé is from one of those pedigreed producers, and they're putting it out at for what is, I think, still a very reasonable price point at $20 what is this? a bottle. This is 20 bucks. Yep, and so this is M by Minuti. So this is, like I said, their entry-level rosé that I feel like is a great standard bearer for anybody that's trying to get a true understanding of what rosé from that part of the world should be. Okay. Yeah. And so... I don't know if you guys have had a chance to, to stick your beak in the glass. And, you know, so oh, anytime yeah. you're, you're tasting wine, what you're really trying to do is smell wine. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, your, your tongue can only really sense four things. What do right? you smell? What do you smell? So in this, right, I mean, so I did this in culinary school. I do this all the time. I stick my nose in wine. We talk about it. Like, uh, I mean. I stick my nose in other people's business. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> um, you know, for this, for me, you know, it's a little grapefruity in the background. what I get. I get, you know, that mineralistic kind of thing going on. That's a great call. You know. Um, I get like, and for me, the mineral even comes off almost like it's like riverbed, right? Like, I was so, going to say, riverbed. I smell river. Yeah, yep. exactly. 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 Yeah, that's, that's I did it right? Part. I was right? Yeah, 100% yeah. right. I 100%. feel I, look, here, here, here's the thing. You can't be wrong. Really? No. So here, can you say that again? You so that be wrong. My children that. can hear. You, me. Well, I can't. I, I sway no influence there. But don't I? When it comes that. to wine, when you're when you're when you're drinking your bottle of wine, you can tell them mom isn't wrong. Mom is never wrong. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So so as you're sticking your nose in the glass, what you're gonna smell is gonna be or could be entirely different than what Chef Plummer I smell. Yeah. And you know, and then when you, when I taste this. You know, I get that mineralistic kind of thing in the background. Like, for me, it's almost like a wet rock situation. Yeah. You know? But I also get grapefruits, little, like, white peachish nectarine kind of in the background on that. Um, and then when you do taste it, Marissa, I'll try this. Put it in your mouth and then suck a little air into your mouth. Like, like I'm like, that. like an aerating it? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You'll get a lot more flavors off okay, of it then. It's pretty try. cool. That's why you see wine people do that, you know? Let You're going to take a, a normal sip. Okay. Normal so G sip. So G takes a little sip off of it, right? Uh-huh. Let me switch. There you go. 
You are such a pro right now. I am a neophyte. <laughs> Holy cow. If you guys could see what this man is doing, he is swishing like he's brushing his teeth. That's it. Wow. Like it's Listerine in the morning. Uh, I, ha- I do take issue, however. Okay. You two got the cold pour. My pour is not cold. Is this blasphemy if I put an ice cube in it? Oh, yeah. Without question. <laughs> no, I'm only... Dang. Pour stuff a little more. Can you, can, you, can you put an ice cube in your glass of wine? You can because it's your glass of wine. Am yeah. I totally... Yeah. Are you going to have a heart attack if I do it? Okay. I feel like it depends on the wine. Okay. Thank you, chef. I feel like okay. it depends on the wine. I'm going to try the swish. Okay, so I take a thing. Give it a good swirl. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, you smelt it before you took the sip, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so you, t- you take a sniff. I'd like three good sniffs, and then I take one really good sip, and then I rifle that sip around to every corner of my mouth, and then I try bringing a little bit of air while it's in my mouth without choking, and then from there, swallow, and then slowly breathe in and out and think about the flavors that you're, you're experiencing, the textures that you're experiencing, whether mm. you're getting some acidity in mm. the wine, whether your mouth is watering. Mm-hmm. It's like a crash course you're getting here. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's funny how much that does change the flavors you're feeling and taste in your mouth. And I, I, I about to say feeling because I do feel it in my mouth as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing, right? Holy like smoke. So that was a whole different situation. Well, so that's the difference between tasting wine and drinking wine, right? So you could just drink wine and everyone can do that. But this whole part of my face is flush with wine. Yeah, like exactly. I, just, I feel like it's all around the entire, from my eyeballs down to my chin. Yeah. And that's because you're breathing and you're at, you've actually got the liquid on every nook and cranny and the crevices of the inside of your mouth. And now you're, that's when you're tasting, is when you've got the smell and you've got the liquid and the remnants of it on the inside of your palate. And you're breathing because now you're getting it from the back of your nose as you're breathing. Did you know this I all did. these years I've known you? I just, you know, I don't, I don't tell you. Sorry, I left you hanging. I had but to this, come to it on my own. All right. This so wine th- is delicious. So what are some things you're tasting, though? What are some things you got? I told you what I got. G told you what I, he gets. I, what do you get? I taste river. I yeah. definitely taste minerally, like, like my plants that I have right now yeah. outside. Yeah. I feel like dirt, but like a nice dirt, like a very earthy... Yeah, in a pleasant uh, way. Yeah. Almost like, uh, you know, for me, I get that riverbed mm-hmm. kind of characteristic. It's something that, you know, if you've, uh, if you've eaten clams or oysters, yeah. like yeah. flavors that are reminiscent to this type of dining experience. Okay, question for both of you from the wine and spirits world and from the food world. Is it blasphemy to have, say, red wine with fish or rosé with a steak? I know pairing is a big thing. I don't follow rules in general, but am I, am I missing out? Like, what's the story? You want to go I, first, G? You can go yeah, first. Yeah, I was going to say, I generally feel that as a rule of thumb, you should drink and eat together what makes you happy because that's ultimately why you do it. Absolutely. Right. right? So if it doesn't make you happy, then you shouldn't try and make someone else happy. That's the whole point of it is that you should be happy doing it. Now, I do feel like through a little bit of practice and some good rules of thumb, you can start to experience fun food and wine combinations just by trying a little harder. You might not prefer red wine in general, but having the right red wine with a cut of steak might create an experience for you that you would then start to appreciate that red wine. And you wouldn't drink it otherwise unless it was with a steak. Yeah, I don't think there's any right or wrong with it. I think it goes with what you think tastes good in your, yeah, in your yeah. mouth. Like for me, though, you know, I'm not going to have a nice pan-seared piece of fish with a, a, a California Cabernet. Right. It's not going to work. Pinot Noir, though, definitely, because it's definitely middle of the road there as on, the, on the flavor scale, right. so that would totally work, you know. Gee, this wine, again, what's it called, and how much does it go for? So it's M Minute, by Minuti. M by Minuti. I've taken notes, oh, yeah, by M the way. By Minuti. 
And so it's 20 bucks approximately on the shelf. You could find it most wine stores. You can obviously find it in the one that's right behind us, but you yeah. can find it in stores throughout the state. You know, good wine shops should carry it. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, I think, like I said, this is a really good way for people to understand very classic flavors. You'll notice that while this wine wasn't short on character, it, it mm -hmm. definitely l had an intense being to it on the yeah, palate, a presence sure. on the palate. What you'll find is on the second sip, this is a very nuanced one. Yes. It is I very was just going to say that right. second sip was very different. It shows impeccable detail. And for me, that's why I enjoy this style from Provence. And I think they do it just about as good, if not better than anybody else. It's delicious. Do you have a hack for us? What's the quickest way to make a bottle of wine cold? So I'll take a towel, like a dish dish towel. A mapin, right? a trapo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wet that down, <laughs> wrap the bottle with it, and throw it in your freezer. Give it 15 minutes, and you should be good. No kidding. You're the other way to get it done is if you don't have a freezer handy is to get ice cold water throw a bunch of salt in there and then bury the bottle inside of it that's g patel from bottle stop wine and spirits superstore we had a parking lot rosé tasting with him outside of his shop in newtown coming up more great rosé recommendations from g and later we'll talk to cocktail expert john DeBerry. i'm marisol castro and i'm chef plum this is seasoned we'll be right back after the break Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Today we're talking about a summertime favorite, Rosé, with G. Patel, owner of five wine and spirit stores throughout Connecticut. In the last segment, we heard about a delicious $20 Rosé, the M. Rosé by Minuti. Let's see what else he's picked out for us. We're going to shift gears. We're going to go towards what I feel like is a really awesome... Are we leaving Provence? We are leaving Provence. We're staying in Europe. We're going to go to Austria. So yeah, the Minuti, M by Minuti, is a wine that I really like with more elevated dishes, things that are a little more detail-oriented and right. very specific flavor profiles. But this rosé, this comes okay. in from... Austria and is a combination of a couple of different grapes. I would not think of Austria as a hotbed for rosé. So this wine is a liter-sized bottle for nine ninety-nine, and so this is the total opposite of what we just drank. Oh my you know, gosh! This is this is Completely like the different. yeah the this is the patio pounder. This is the <laughs> you like that one, don't that you? Was, <laughs> that's not our the new patio <laughs> pounder. <laughs> yeah, so so this is like you know for everyday drinking. This is your quaffing rosé. This is your party rosé. So this is Groys, okay, and this is their rosé, and they use. Uh, Zweigelt and a little bit of St. Laurent in here. These are, are key grapes to the Austrian red wine making. And Zweigelt has some pretty good color to it. So it, it offers, while you're making a rosé, usually a darker colored one, as we see here. Yeah. And so uh, this rosé will have a, a touch more tannin to it, a little bit more spice, which is inherent to the Zweigelt grape. So this is why we say, you know, rosé is, is really diverse and obviously still very affordable, depending on where you're getting yeah. it from. And because the wine world itself has so many regions that you can buy red white from, you know, a lot of red wine producers are tinkering, knowing that rosé is a hot category, with making great rosé from their zones. And this is a perfect example of a region that's known for having zippy, zesty, bright, aromatic whites, putting out a rosé that can fit the category for people looking for a very versatile style of rosé. The deeper color here... Mm -hmm bigger aroma set of spice and darker cherry fruit versus the more delicate flavor sets that you got from the Minuti. This is, I think, 
a wine that can handle a broader array of food. You could have this wine with burgers. Now, typically, I was going to say lamb burgers, chops. Burgers, lamb burgers, lamb chops would be okay. great with this. Yeah, I mean, I, mean you, I could do it with everything from a really good summer salad, which is it's cliche. Oh, yeah, rosé and salad, of course. Yeah. You know, of course, that goes well together. But, you know, don't be afraid to tinker with proteins, right? Like a really spiced up Cajun rubbed type chicken or some, some really good salmon with maybe some, some mustard influence to it into your salad. It's really crazy. I would make a harissa squid with this because it would go awesome with it. Ooh, you know? yeah. I like that. It'd be that really good. Because on the nose with this, for me, I get, what do you, get? you know almost a little allspice-ish. I get olives. I can see olives a little bit. Um, as we all put the glasses up to our nose and take a big smell of it, it's kind of funny like to watch us all doing it. I like put your beak in it. Yeah, put your beak in it. That's right. But That's right, man. Does darker mean better with a rosé? So is it completely subjective and different? I would say it's completely subjective and different. It's going to be dependent on the varietal. It's also going to be dependent on how much skin contact. So to make a red wine, you're talking about weeks to even like a month of skin contact with the, the grapes and the juice. Most rosés are anywhere from a few hours up to... I don't know. It could be a week on the darkest colored rosés, but I feel like most winemakers are pulling their uh, must off at at least 48 hours or, or before 48 hours. From a few hours up to 48 is, I feel like, where you're going to find the, the biggest window of most rosé wines. And this wine, I'm not sure how long they left it on the skins, but Zweigelt in general gives a pretty deep colored wine. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about a few hours. These guys could have done 10 hours and look at the difference in color. Completely different. Yeah. But so now you're going to get tannin. This is a rosé that you could have with steak, red meat. We were talking mm -hmm. about burgers, mm -hmm. right? Because tannin and juicy meat work tremendously together. There's something scientific about it. Ask a scientist because I'm not a scientist. But <laughs> the two compounds latch on to one another. So as you've got like this really juicy, fatty meat that you're eating, if you have anything that has some tannins to it, the tannin in the wine latches onto it and it like cleans your palate away. And it makes you taste everything just a mm -hmm. little yeah. more vibrantly. That's the beauty of a good food and wine pairing, right? Like yeah, you, yeah. you take a bite out of food, you have a, a, a sip of wine, and it's like the two work harmony together. It's suddenly, yeah. Last but not least, what is happening with this business? This looks like it has the cork of a champagne or some sort of sparkly situation. So this right here is Masotina's Cuvée Rosé. And oh. this is a really fun example of good bubbly rosé. So there's multiple ways in which you can make a wine pink. The traditional ways is the, the skin maceration, limited contact, etc. You're not going to, like, pop this cork? No, I'm us? not pointing it at you for any other reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pour you some. Uh, this is a, a, a sparkling wine that comes in from Venado. Ah! This is a, a producer that well makes done. famously really good Prosecco, and this is their rosé. I was going to ask if this had its roots in Prosecco. Yep. This producer is a family farm that has been doing it for a couple hundred years at this point. I think that their Prosecco is outstanding. It's a very reasonably priced one. But this happens to be their rosé. And so what I was saying about how you make rosé, there's kind of like a cheater method that's really kind of frowned upon in every part of the world, and that's mixing your red wine with your white wine. It should be that you've pressed red wine grapes, and the pressing of the red wine grapes has uh, limited skin contact, and that's how you get pink wine. Well, the only place that it's really right. viewed as being a great way to make pink wine is in bubbly. And really, in Champagne, it was kind of perfected. Because they've done a great job with it there, other regions around the world that have become known for, for sparkling wine have started to adopt that same philosophy. And this is one really good example of a producer making pink wine that's sparkling by blending both red and white wine grapes. So Prosecco, the key grape, the quality grape to it is called Galera, known for having really good like stone fruit, peachy, apricotty flavors, could have some really good apple, citrus undertones, sometimes a touch of minerality depending on where the grapes are grown. Mm -hmm. What they did here was they've kept this wine a majority of Galera, but then they've blended in 
Pinot Noir, and Raboso. That's how they got this wine to be pink. And so they do this to add different elements to the wine. The Pinot Noir adds a little bit of softness of fruit. The Raboso is a really nervy, high acidity, high tannin red. So that's going to add some well, body get, to the get, wine get as well. Get to it. Get to it. <laughs> Don't leave I mean, a girl. Th- I'm terribly thirsty. Well, so for me, this is uh, this is life, right? So what is life without bubbles? I feel like Boring. so people often say, oh, well, I have this celebration or I'm looking mm. to do this. And so I need champagne or I need sparkling wine or yeah. I need Prosecco. And you say, why do you need to wait for those moments to open up something bubbly? Do the, I put my beak in this? Because it you, makes my nose itchy. All right. So when I say put your beak into it, I, what I mean by that is don't be afraid to stick your nose into a glass. Okay. I see so many people that try and do like the 10-inch the method. Like they've got the glass 10 inches from their face and they think right. they're smelling the wine. And you might get some aroma. But I feel like the real sweet spot is right up in between your upper lip and the, the where your yeah. nose starts. And about three to four inches away from that. I, I think that I in that window is right. where you really get the best range of flavors. I smelled the floors I did when I renovated my house a thousand years ago. Wow. Is what? that a good thing? Well, the marriage was not a good thing, but the floors were fantastic. Well, so then I would say that we're already <laughs> off to a good start here. Um, wow. But it does. It smells like, I guess, wood is what I'm smelling. For me, I get lots of good stone fruit character, and that's definitely from the Galera grape. I get this really kind of like cream, strawberry cream kind of element to the wine, right? right. And so it's also really fresh with this fresh raspberry, uh, cherry characteristic. I don't think that there's really a ton of spicier elements in this wine, but I do get a touch, like a, a very thin veil of minerality. So to me, this wine shows tremendous complexity for its price at thirteen ninety nine. This is something you can pop and pour. That's what I was going to say. This is, this is $13.99 a bottle, right? Exactly. So Masotina Cuvée Rosé Extra Dry. What extra dry means is sparkling wow. wine has grades of dryness. So delicious. The amount of residual sugar in this. Brut is... For the most part, the most dry that you'll typically find. And extra dry, despite the way it's, it's worded, is actually just before brute on the dryness scale. So it's a touch sweeter than brute without being sweet. What do you smell? Oh, off this. this I get strawberries. I do know what you're talking about when you talk about the floor thing. Okay, I'm not going crazy. You guys no. smell fruit. I smell wood. On here, though, I know it's deep in it. I get the stone fruits. I kind of get that nectarine thing in the background. I feel the strawberries more in the mouth when I taste it, but I can I can smell them now that I've tasted it. It's funny because if you smell it and put it on your beak, or like 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 that you guys have been saying, and then and then drink it and then smell it again, you might smell different things. Yeah, you absolutely. might get more more aromas into your nose. I'm and sure. that, it's always the case. So a good wine should evolve, right? And yeah. so as you're having a glass of it, it you're, opens up, right? Exactly. And you yourself, you kind of you become used to the more assertive and upfront flavors. And as your palate kind of catches up to the loudest flavors in the wine, you start to experience and understand better the more delicate and understated flavors of a wine. Maybe if there are apple. any in the wine. Gee, these are fantastic. Uh, I just want to walk through one more time so people know what, what we were tasting here. The M by Minuti, yep. right? And that bottle goes for, that's probably the most expensive bottle we drank today, right? It is, yeah. It's nineteen ninety nine, twenty bucks. 20 It's fantastic. Then, exactly. of course, we had the Groys. The patio pounder right there. That's right. Uh, that's an Austrian rosé, and that's in a liter size bottle. Yeah, it's a liter size bottle, which is crazy. That's that, is it double a seven fifty or almost? So it's about thirty three percent more than a seven fifty ml. So think about it this way: if this was supposed to be a seven fifty ml, back off thirty three. This is like six dollars and sixty six cents for a bottle of wine. How about that? And tr- think about how great that was for that price. It's right? Delicious. And then the final one we have here, the bubbly. Which one is that? So that's the Masotina. That's the Cuvée Rosé Extra Dry from Veneto, Italy, uh, and that one's about 14 bucks. I let you say that because I was drinking more of it. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, last one for me, G. When it comes to drinking rosés like this and people want to come in, 
to a store, what's the best thing they can tell their wine professional when they're talking to if they're looking for a rosé? Well, so I feel like if you're shopping for a rosé that you should immediately start with the distinction that you are searching for a dry pink wine. Yeah. You know, the days of sweet pink wine are, are very much past this. It's definitely our, our grandfather's generation. The folks that are looking for rosé now, I think, are, are automatically searching for something that's going to be dry. And let's face it, when you've got a ton of residual sugar in a bottle of pink, it's not going to work well with a variety of foods. And I think that rosé's calling card has been that it's for the culinary inquisitive. You can have it with so yeah. many different things. Yeah. It's a very versatile type of wine that works well with a wide range of foods. And so if you're searching for it, you, you heard this program, uh, you should know that you're going to find lots of options out there. I would just encourage you to focus on smaller producers. You know, smaller producers are what make great wine. And larger marketers, big wine companies, and I don't fault them for anything. It's, it's kind of just, it's not my bag. I'd prefer to drink from a smaller producer than a larger producer because I know they can control the quality and I know that there is, there's tender love and care across every step in the process. Yeah. You know, those are the people that you want to drink the rosé from. And at this point over the past, say, three years, rosé has become such a hot topic. There's a lot of mediocrity out there right now. Find a good wine store. Look for somebody that is even somewhat knowledgeable. They don't need to be a certified some. They just yeah. need to be somebody that cares somewhat about the product and is going through an experience and a journey on their own. And that's going to be the person that will help guide you. Thanks to G. Patel, sommelier and owner of Bottle Stops in Newtown, Torrington, and Avon. He also owns Valley Discount Wine in Ansonia and Madison Wine Exchange in Madison, Connecticut. The rosés G. introduced us to are available all over the state. But if your local shop doesn't carry one you want to try, ask the staff to order it for you. And if you want to see these wines, check out photos taken by Connecticut Public's Ryan Karen King at ctpublic.org seasoned. We're going to stay on the topic of alcohol for a bit but not the type you drink. Fifth State Distillery is a family-owned business in Bridgeport, making some damn good local craft spirits. Bridget Shulton and her husband Rob own the distillery and figured out a way to become essential when the pandemic threatened their business. I asked her how she transitioned from distilling alcohol from making their gin, vodka, and maple whiskey to making hand sanitizer. It was about March 10th, and we pivoted almost instantly to learn how to make it, get the FDA formulation for it, and get more product, more corn in to distill. And instead of turning into something yummy and drinkable, we turned it into hand sanitizer. How difficult is it to transition from doing, you know, what you guys normally do to, to a sanitizer? I got to imagine it's not crazy different, is it? No, it's not crazy different. Um, so we we distill every day our corn to make ethanol. So instead of making it into vodka or whiskey, we distill it to 80% and turn it into hand sanitizer. Now we do have to add other products to make it hand sanitizer. So the FDA formulation adds hydrogen peroxide, glycerin, and isopropyl alcohol. And so basically you get those and you add them to the alcohol, the ethanol you're making, and that becomes a sanitizer. Exactly. Can exactly. You put, can you put any kind of like scent in there or something? You know, a lot of people do and can, but the FDA formulation for COVID-19 does not say that they want any smell into right. it. So essentially it smells like just clean alcohol. So there is no off smell. We don't have any additives like that methanol that people are talking about is very toxic for your skin. Ours is a beverage grade ethanol versus an industrial grade, which is 
what they use for gasoline. So ours just has a nice, fresh alcohol smell that goes away in the 10 seconds that you rub your hands together. Now, what's the response been to you guys? I mean, here locally, I got to imagine people are really getting behind you. They very much are. And, you know, it's, it's been good for us in that we've met a lot of new people who didn't even know we were around. You know, we've supplied the postal service, the police departments, hospitals, many nonprofits, and then just the general public. And they've all been very receptive and happy that we were here because for a long time, there was no product available. I mean, it was scary there for a little bit. You couldn't find any of that stuff anywhere. It was. It was really scary. And, you know, we had the police chief in Hartford coming down and buying from us. Wow. People were afraid. And nurses and doctors, even if the hospital wasn't buying it, Mm -hmm. they wanted it for themselves and their families. So it was was really, you know, heartwarming to be able to do something because we thought we were going to be closing our doors, just like many restaurants, because, you know, our spirits business is down like 85%. It's certainly picking back up. We won't really see a huge bump until, I want to say, when people feel like they're more back to normal. You know, people still, even though restaurants were open, you know, it's very limited. Bars aren't open. There's no festivals happening. No sports arenas that are buying alcohol. So when things become a little bit more back to normal or the new normal that we may see, um, then I think we'll see it come back like that. We're still doing the hand sanitizer. We we have the ability to do it through the end of the year. The FDA allowed a lot of things during COVID. Right. So hopefully that's a line of business that'll just be added to us in the future. That was Bridget Shulton. Bridget, along with her husband, Rob, own Fifth State Distillery in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Coming up, John DeBerry, co-founder of the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and the author of Drink What You Want, the subjective guide to making objectively delicious cocktails. And it also shows uh, how you can rotate, switch through spirits, like uh, if you want to use Japanese whiskey or if you want to use rum, you can do these simple ingredient swaps and change nothing else about the drink uh, and get a very different outcome. Stay with us. This is Seasoned. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. John DeBerry's entree into the world of food and drink was not straightforward. He studied Japanese history and language at Columbia University and was headed to law school when a friend helped him get a job at an exclusive speakeasy, PDT. Please don't tell. All during a time when the boss, Jim Meehan, a respected mixologist and author, was hiring for enthusiasm, not experience. Law school lost all its appeal. <laughs> and a year later, John was bartending at David Chang's Mama Fuko. And a few years after that, he was developing the bar program for Chang's restaurant empire. John is the author of the perfectly timed book, Drink What You Want, The Subjective Guide to Making Objectively Delicious Cocktails. But before we dive into that, we're going to talk to him about a passion project. We asked him about his work with the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, which he co-founded with former restaurant owner Alex Pumoulier. The Restaurant Workers Community Foundation was established a few years ago by me and uh, six other our kind of founding board members to address uh, the very, very endemic quality of life issues in the restaurant industry that lead to very poor outcomes for people working. 40% of restaurant workers were 
at or near the federal poverty level in 2017. There's high rates of suicide, um, substance abuse, uh, gender violence at work. So, you know, we were basically people in the restaurant industry. Also, my husband is a philanthropic advisor and he's on the, the founding board. We got together to try to do something about it. It was sort of like a reaction a bit to the 2016 election and trying to sort of firewall the vulnerable members of the restaurant worker community against, you know, potential erosion of rights and quality of life. 2019, we saw a little bit bigger budget. We you know, raised uh, about $40,000, which is 10000 above our, our goal that we had set out. Um, but then uh, when the COVID crisis happened in March, we got together and created a separate fund to address relief efforts. And since then, we've raised about $6.5 million, which goes to uh, direct financial assistance to restaurant workers who are facing emergencies. Uh, and we're also doing uh, grants to nonprofits that are providing services to restaurant workers. And then we're also establishing a, a zero-interest loan program for restaurants that are trying to get through this. Amazing. I think it's pretty fun to see how great people in this industry have kind of really come together during this whole COVID situation. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's just people who tend to be attracted to the restaurant industry are just generous giving people. So there's just this tremendous spirit of of generosity uh, within the industry, just kind of by nature of who's the population. Um, And then I also am seeing a lot of people who aren't in the industry who love restaurants, which is most of us who are really feeling a, a deep sense of grief and loss for the kind of emotional experience that restaurants provided. Somehow in the midst of organizing and fundraising for the foundation, John found time to write his first book, Drink What You Want. John, in the book, uh, you say in order to make great cocktails, you must uh, first understand what a cocktail is. And I mean, I think that seems like (laughs) a pretty smart place to start. (laughs) Talk about that. What does that mean to you? For me, you know, I I spent a better part of 10 years training other people how to bartend and how to understand drinks, whether they were servers or management teams or actual bartenders. And so when you kind of have to explain things to people over and over again, you kind of learn how to economize and create really strong foundations that you can start with and then you can build on more easily rather than just throwing a bunch of facts at people and trying to have them put the pieces together. Uh, So for me, trying to take apart the idea of what a cocktail is and separating it from this very kind of fancy image of something that's super elaborate and like has a really nice glass with all this garnish and, you know, 20 different spirits. Um, and just so show people that like a cocktail is basically just two drinks mixed together um, that creates something that you've chosen. Well, I was going to say, John, you your book is beautiful and you assuaged my fears when I saw the sentence about if you've mixed coffee with cream and sugar then you've made your first cocktail because I don't know a blessed thing about, about mixing mixing spirits. So thank you for adding that line. So John, you believe there are certain things that make a cocktail objectively delicious. So not accounting for subjective flavor preference. Let's get into that a little bit because this is exactly the kind of nerdy stuff home bartenders and home chefs like myself love to hear about. Great drinks are balanced. It's true for food as well, trust me. But what are those elements of objectively delicious drinks like alcohol, sweetness, acidity, bitterness. What are the things that go into it? Well, you pretty much listed all of them. And to help people understand what objective means, you could think about it in terms of measurable. What are the measurable ways that cocktails can be good or bad? And yes, it's alcoholic strength if you're using alcohol, acidity, bitterness, uh, temperature, dilution is a really important one that kind of can be can be lost in that. And usually you get dilution from ice that melts as you make as you mix it. Um, and then bitterness is also a very important element to a lot of cocktails. So to me, that's 
objective doesn't mean that there's one definition of what delicious is. It's sort of like these are things that you can kind of at least agree to disagree on in a sort of like, you know, numerical way um, in terms of like the temperature, you can measure that acidity, you can actually measure that dilution, et cetera. So that's where people kind of have to understand that like there's certain rules to play by and the rules can be different for people, but they're sort of the same general set of rules. We have three recipes on our website, uh, ctpublic.org slash seasoned. We have a Manhattan, a martini, and of course, one of my favorites, the classic margarita. Let's talk about the balance here and how we might tweak the elements, um, adding or subtracting to make non-classic riffs. The best example of something where you can talk about subjective deliciousness is martinis because so many people have so many different opinions about what a martini is. Some people take a very strict definition and it has to be gin, it has to be dry vermouth, you know, it has to be a specific recipe, which is fine. Um, and I tend to think that there's a better re recipe than, than not better, but you can play around with all kinds of different variations. So the standard recipe for a martini is uh, two ounces of gin with an ounce of uh, dry vermouth. And then I include orange bitters because it really brightens everything up, but um, it's not gonna fall apart if you don't have those or don't like that for whatever reason. Um, and But also I love martinis that are actually, the proportions are flipped and it's more vermouth than gin. You can do all kinds of different spirit variations. And you can also substitute things for, for dry vermouth. So you'll see dry vermouth, if you take it apart, it's generally flavored wine. And so if you think about it, well, what's kind of similar to flavored wine structurally, there's all sorts of different kind of aperitifs out there. You could even use sake, you could even use like literally wine. So you can kind of see how you can slot in similar, similar ingredients and create really different experience from just a simple uh, swap. I have to say, I did not realize that gin is like a two-part situation, that it's actually, it comes from something else. Can you explain that, please? Because I read it, I read that line a couple of times because I'm dipping my toe into the gin pool. I'm a big yeah. girl now at 46. Okay. I'm a big girl. <laughs> <laughs> We're all on our own journey. Um, so <laughs> there is a distinction I make in my book where there's spirits that are made from an ingredient where the expression of the ingredient is the point of the spirit. So if we're talking about bourbon, bourbon's made from mostly corn. It's kind of meant to express that, that flavor and that ingredient. Uh, whiskey, you know, Scotch whiskey is made from barley. You know, the same thing applies. But with, with gin, the base spirit isn't really super important. Some people give it more importance than others. Uh, but essentially what it is, is like a very neutral spirit that's been re-distilled. And distillation is the process of basically heating up a mixture of liquids and separating them out by their boiling points. And so you redistill a neutral spirit with the various botanicals that you want to include in the gin and they're historically and classically kind of, there's cardamom, there's um, blank juniper, uh, <laughs> angelica, and the list goes on, there's citrus sometimes. Um, so it's, it's sort of this compound situation where you're almost like you're making a cocktail in a bottle because you're kind of choosing the recipe. You mentioned botanicals. Which mm -hmm. brings us to our next point. You have introduced, oh, by the way, in addition to this cookbook and, and your foundation, a line of non-alcoholic botanicals. So tell us about that. So, and funny story, I'm actually also doing a dry 2020. I always do like a restriction every year of something, you know, like I'll choose not to consume a certain thing. And this year it was uh, alcohol. And I'm wondering if that was like a really brilliant choice or <laughs> a really bad one. I still the, irony, my mind. the sheer <laughs> irony in that. Um, but with Proto, which is my line of <clears throat> drinks, it's sort of born out of, kind of two main things. One is that I've always wanted to kind of create something 
uh, a drink that you could package rather than just having it be confined to the bar that I was working at. I wanted it to kind of be everywhere. And then I, you know, I don't remember when it exactly happened, but I, I just always kind of had it in my head that non-alcoholic drinks were this kind of uncharted territory for bartenders um, and very overlooked. And traditionally have been just very sweet or kind of bland or boring. It's really different now than it was even like two years ago. But to me, the kind of true test of a, of a person who can create a cocktail recipe is if you can create something that is delicious and sophisticated on the same level as something that contains alcohol. So I, uh, I used to work for Food & Wine magazine as the editing their cocktail book. I was really into the mocktail chapters, which is what they called it. I also have a chapter in my, my book of non-alcoholic cocktails, um, which to me felt very natural, but people were kind of surprised by, uh, which is sort of nice. And then with Proto, I was, I've always been a big Amaro nerd, and Amaro is like Campari or Fernet Branca, and they're made up of botanicals, and I, I have all of the botanicals or most of the botanicals that go into these Italian you know, bitter uh, liqueurs in my house, and a trick that writers do is they'll basically find anything they can do that isn't writing. Uh, to, <laughs> to occupy yes. their time. Uh, and so, you know, I, I just kind of was monkeying around with like just um, infusing uh, these botanicals like hibiscus, gentian, uh, Chinese rhubarb, chamomile uh, into water in a kind of a cold brew sort of style and then blending them together to make a drink to taste the way that I wanted to. And I, I came up with two kind of recipes uh, so far. The Rivington Spritz, which has hibiscus, chamomile, uh, strawberry, and champagne vinegar. And then Ludlow Red, got a whole host of things. It's blackberry, black pepper, uh, roasted dandelion root, uh, and fig vinegar, along with chrysanthemum, honeysuckle, a bunch of other flowers. Um, they're named after streets in the Lower East Side, which is where I live, so I wanted to keep it kind of semi-local. I wonder... What does John DeBerry have in his home bar? Because I've got like the most basic, basic stuff. Oh, wow. What do you have? Um, it's probably worse than you can than you can imagine. Um, right now, I have maybe a bottle of tequila and like half a bottle of Irish whiskey, and that's about it. Because no, I, don't... I do not believe you. <laughs> do you believe this? He's a, he's a, restaurant, he's a restaurant guy. Absolutely, I believe him. It's bourbon and yeah, and it's tequila. A, you think that restaurant people have these like elaborate things at home, and it's like yes. the last thing. Yeah, that's about it. You know, because I'm I'm doing a dry 2020, so anytime I ever buy alcohol, I mean, my husband is not doing dry 2020, so he's so he's doing all the at, he's drinking for both of you, basically. Um, <laughs> So if I if you showed up on my drawer right now, I'd probably make you a tequila eyeball because I have some really nice tequila in my cabinet called Siete Leguas. It just goes great with everything. So I would I would fall back on that, but maybe I could throw some other stuff together. I could try and make something like a margarita. I'll take one of those. Might as well. You want one of those too? We could just do those. Those are fine. I will totally take one of those. Yeah. And real quick, mezcal. I feel like is mm -hmm. having a moment. Is yeah. that just the perceived layman's observation, or is it really a thing? Yeah. Like the craft spirits boom of the past, probably late, started about 15 years ago, but it really picked up speed in the last 10 to five. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, interest in finding very, I don't want to say obscure because they're not obscure, but previously unto many Americans, um, spirits from around the world. And mezcal is the category of like agave spirits from Mexico. That's mm -hmm. sort of a broader category. And tequila is actually a subset of it. 
And it's not super approachable from an American palate, I have to say. It's sort of more of a learned thing, and I'm really happy that more people are embracing it because it's so delicious and interesting and unique. Um, but it does have a kind of smoky vegetal thing going on, which can be like a little bit, a little bit shocking at first, but uh, I think it's definitely worth it because it, it actually tequila and mezcal kind of remind me the most of wine of any spirit because where they grow and how you're growing the plant um, has a really big impact on the taste of it setting aside even just the way you're you know distilling the product so it's really like very um, interesting and complex thing that transmits a lot of information about where it's made to the drinker great to pair with food as well yeah yeah absolutely John DeBerry is co-founder of the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and the author of Drink What You Want, The Subjective Guide to Making Objectively Delicious Cocktails. But if cocktails aren't your thing, he's also the creator of Proto, a line of non-alcoholic botanical drinks. Find links and information on John's book, along with three classic delicious cocktail recipes on our website, ctpublic.org seasoned. Before we go, listeners, we are up to our eyeballs in ears of corn that oh. is and we want to share your original recipes for fresh local corn with us yeah that was a bad joke but i see what you did there listen if we pick your recipe you'll win bragging rights and the chance to participate in a cook-along with me on zoom visit ctpublic.org season for details and rules and minus all you still can't enter i'm sorry it's not fair i'm gonna enter under an alias plum mm. so there for now <laughs> i'm still marisol castro and I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie Tolarski. Thanks for listening. Bye.